Hey everybody, welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast. We're back after a week off, and we are destined to disappoint you again. I'm Sebastian Peak. I'm Jeremy Hellstrom. I'm Josh Walrath. I'm Brett Van Spurnberg. Let's move to Laramie, Wyoming. Josh, do you have any uh, food updates for us? Well, if you had to have to go to last week, because I okay. I didn't didn't uh, I didn't do uh, one this week. Well, actually, I had the same exact same thing this week. Boy, you're you're a ways off. That's, Look, I'm that's scrolling so your timeline, Josh. Those aren't mine. Double trouble. Okay. Mm-hmm. More scrolling. Josh, good looking buns. Those God, are some good looking buns. Right, his voodoo shirt. Josh got a voodoo shirt. A yeah, voodoo I'm gonna have to. I'll, I'll, I'll have I have that sitting next to me. Okay, good. Right. Yep. Uh, ooh, some. Uh, that was home home bake, dude. I I, I actually made some. I I made some smoked cabbage steaks. Nice. Is that what? Yeah, that along is? with That's two New York strips that are smoked and and reverse seared. They came out fantastic and amazingly tender. That so I rendered down the fat caps of the New York mm-hmm. strips, and uh, yeah, it, it it turned out to be yeah, buttery, wonderful goodness. I'm gonna die in like three weeks. Okay, still scrolling. Um, is this it? No, he said almost that one. All right, yeah. is this it? There you go. Okay, all right, this Josh, can you tell us about your burger? I can. I'm glad that we finally got here. This was a really good one. These are three fried chicken strips tossed in Cajun seasoning, mm. which is then topped with shredded lettuce, tomatoes, pickles, and Thousand Island dressing. Oh, and white queso. Yeah, there's there's queso in there as well. So this was this was fantastic, and I had it again today, except that I added some angry buffalo sauce to it and it just added that extra kick and zest that was that I found missing from the first time but the uh, the phone's ringing so anyway yeah the uh, the chicken was was fried perfectly the Cajun season was was stamped on there nicely the the queso and, and everything all came together really really nicely uh, if you were to get this I, I would recommend that you would add a little heat to it, but, you know, not everybody uh, would want to do that. The Cajun spices may just be good enough for most of you. So, yeah, this is this was a good one. I gave it a good eight and a half. Not the favorite, but still really tasty and good enough that I got it twice in a row. Top story, of course, this week has to be the Core i9-13900K launch. Or really, that would have been last week. We did podcast last week. Let's just pretend this is last week and you're just catching up on old episodes even though Mm -hmm. we're recording it right now and we're going to go to very topical 13900k processor review coverage as the title indicates intel back on top but are they back on top in everything and of course the 13900k launched recently i have not seen it in stock anywhere near this 589 dollar price but that's of course like a thousand unit tray price it think it started at like $660. But if you consider that it's going up against the Ryzen 9 7950X at $699, suddenly Intel has the uh, budget option. And in fact, you can buy 
690 and six, uh, 790 boards with DDR4 support and save even more money. We're going to look at the 13600K soon, the i5, but for now we have testing of the 13900K. On an MSI MAG-Z690 Tomahawk Wi-Fi DDR5 board, using the latest BIOS as of September 14. The only reason I even bring that up is because when I was writing this up, October 17, there was a new BIOS with new microcode, and I didn't test with it. So who knows if that changes anything. In the past, we've seen some changes related to power limits and things after the fact with these uh, unlocked processor parts from Intel. But anyway... Cinebench R20 results, as we can see here from this full slate of processors, new and old, and the reason I have R20 is because I have legacy results from a 5950X that I borrowed, as well as the 5800X3D that we borrowed. And as you can see, its only competition is the 7950X, and it actually beats it. It beats it single core and all core. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. Intel, the company that said that Cinebench R20 doesn't represent real-world performance, and I have a link to their 2019 IFA presentation PDF where they say this. Well, how do they feel now that they're winning? And they're winning R23 against the competition. Here we have it against the 7850X. All-core, over 40,000 in Cinebench R23. And you can be a denier. You can say, oh, my i9-12900KS is good enough. And look at the results. It's just not. It's not good enough anymore, Kent. And I'm talking to you specifically right now. Blender, classroom render. Here, the Ryzen is back on top, but only by three seconds. So two seconds, two and a half seconds. It, it's it's really, really close. I think the easiest uh, takeaway from this is that depending on the, the workload, the Ryzen 9 is going to trade blows with the Core i9-13900K. And you can see there's a little bit of an edge in things like 7-zip, as usual. And that tends to scale with core count, as does this older X264 HD benchmark. And here, the more demanding second pass, you get about five extra frames per second with the 7950X versus the 13900K. But how impressive is it that with fewer performance cores, we're still only on eight performance cores with this, and just yet another massaging of the Intel 7 process that we are actually trading blows with a five nanometer part from AMD. Intel's got some good, uh, they've got some good chip engineers. I mean, their process guys are still pretty good. And it sounds like they, um, you know, they finally massaged their 10 nanometer, which is now Intel 7, to where it works well, well enough. Um, they've able to, they you know, able to get upwards of, of six gigahertz is, pretty amazing because isn't that called uh what denning scaling is denard uh, denard scaling yes uh back from oh. you know that kind of hit the wall in 2006 2007 and and um we've been well not we but the royal we uh we've been able to get that you know up quite a bit higher without totally blowing the power budget um um I mean, it's hefty. Mostly. But it's not yeah. blown. Yeah. I yeah, just thought it was interesting that. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to point out that Intel's 7, the Intel 7 process with Raptor Lake, it's actually new. It's Intel 7 Ultra. I'm reading a wiki chip here mm-hmm. internally. They call it Intel 7 Ultra. Yeah, it's still based on 10, but. But it's a they've... full PDK update over the one yeah. used by Alder Lake. 
or Alder Lake. Oh. It, it can handle so it deserves even more than more a power. plus. But the curve has been improved. Oh. This is where we saw Tell. some of the clock speed increases with uh, Raptor Lake, is that it has a 200 megahertz at ISO voltage increase in clock frequencies. Well, t- tell us about the power consumption and, uh, and what it takes to cool it versus 7950. Well, uh, let's look at... Here's Blender. We'll get to the gaming stuff in a second, but... Here's that Blender classroom render, but looking at voltage based on hardware info 64 logging. And the 12900K pretty much stopped right at 1.25 volts under load. And this one, as you can see, when I started the test, because you actually have to look at the inside of these two peaks to see the, the run. The run took so much less time using the new processor that I just cut off the chart. It's truncated, but here I'm actually you know, opening and starting Blender, and then it gets down to its all-core frequencies and voltage, which ended up being Mm -hmm. over 1.3 volts. And Hmm. then it peaks way up at, you know, 1.375 almost volts when it's doing that nervous boosts. Yeah. That nervous, nervous range. Yeah, it's a little worrying, but it does that to hit those crazy 5.8 gigahertz turbo boost max frequencies and here's something here's some screenshots taken during single and all core loads i had cinebench all core running and it was at six four that was single uh, single core so here here is the single threaded cinebench r23 load and it hit a max of 1.364 volts and then on all core it was 1.296 so Basically, you can see that here. It's right around 1.3. I don't know why it scales a little bit higher. Hardware Info 64 and CPU-Z do not agree on voltage. I don't know if there's an offset in place, but it's it's been that way with this and the new Ryzen stuff, where CPU-Z will have a lower number. But you can see that there were two cores on this 13900K that were boosting up almost all the way to 5.8 gigahertz, and the rest were right at 5.5. It's... I think equally impressive to look at the E-Core stuff because E-Cores, uh, 4.3 Ooh. gigahertz on your E-Cores, they're, they're definitely producing a lot more in the way of performance than they were before, which is why you can compete with the likes of a 16-core, 32-thread processor with only eight performance cores. But if we look at gaming, just look at uh, 3D Mark, and we have TimeSpy, TimeSpy Extreme, and the new Speedway, which is very demanding and extremely GPU-limited. And you can see between just the 7950X and the new 13900K that there's virtually no difference. There is much more of an advantage when you go down to TimeSpy, which is less demanding, a little bit more CPU bound these days, especially with a 4090, which is what I used to test this. And you go from 35,796 to 36,776. So almost a thousand points higher with the Intel part. And I think that's just due to the extremely high boost clocks that you can get. And then I tried a, a Metro Exodus, like seven, you know, the, of course what you do with a high end part with a 4090 is you test 720p low. Mm-hmm. And here I got, here's the difference. 262.72 frames per second with the Ryzen part versus 262.44 frames per second. <laughs> with the uh, Intel part. Again, average of three runs. The only advantage really is that you got two frames per second higher on average in your 1% lows. And then you move up to 1080 normal 
and it's slightly faster on the Intel side, but it's again, these are very evenly matched parts. It's almost like Intel knew what AMD's uh, performance was and then matched it. And they matched it with power. And we can talk about, we've talked about power. We've talked about voltage. The actual power draw from these things is uh, pretty intense. I mean, you've got something. Well, it's a lot of voltage. Yeah, something over 300 watts. It's 253 watts is what they're saying it is. But then if you have a standard, you know, unlimited motherboard BIOS situation like I did, uh, it's drawing more than that. 325 watts is what I saw in Blender. So last night I published this little follow-up, this power scaling performance thing. And I'm not unique in this at all. Obviously, Gerbauer had his day one 90-watt, you know, performance scaling. And he'll take a 10% performance uh, hit to lower power by 30%. But I thought, hey, the, the last time they actually had a TDP, which Intel defines as being the maximum power that one should be designing the system for, ensuring operation to publish specs under the maximum theoretical workload. Well, they don't use TDP anymore for that reason, because they can't promise that when, say, the 11900K had 125-watt TDP and then was, was drawing 210 mm-hmm. watts when I first reviewed it. And then 270 watts after their performance-enhancing BIOS update that happened shortly after I finished reviewing the product. So clearly, when your motherboard is ignoring power limits, those things just drew a tremendous amount of power. And the new standard is to have processor base power and maximum turbo power, which will also be ignored when your motherboard default looks like this. Here is the test motherboards and MSI, and long duration power limit is set to 4,096 watts. <laughs> oh, I've got a four kilowatt huh. processor here. Uh, mm-hmm. It's what's uh, how big are the traces on that motherboard? Just curious. It's I mean, a robust board. I mean, it's a server sure. grade uh, PCB, they say. I mean, how robust at 4,000? 512 watts? amps CPU current. Oh, that's how robust. Oh, they're they're okay. actually four gauge. Four yeah, gauge. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's. It's a little ridiculous, of course, but that's the way it is. I mean, you, when you first boot this those, up. Those settings are meaningless. It, of it's course, just it's, it's ridiculous. Infinite. It's infinite power. But why? <laughs> you should say that differently. But why? Why even have it? What is the point? The point is, like I just said, infinite power. You don't want any kind of actual artificial power limit. You want to be limited only by thermals. That's the new You're normal. St- okay. You're still not so saying that's that right. So that's why the process is Power. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> that's why the processor is glowing red in your thumbnail? Hey, do you remember that Tau thing? T-A-U? Mm, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, and even even here it shows 56 seconds, but that isn't real. Because these uh, Alder Lake and the new uh, Raptor Lake, they ignore Tau. It doesn't exist anymore. They don't use it. It's It used to be 56 seconds, and that made sense because back when you had a PL1, which was your base, and then a PL2 was your boost, the Tau would limit how long PL2 was active. So after 56 seconds, boom, you're back down to PL1. Sorry. And that prevents your cooler from getting completely thermally saturated and becoming useless. But now... But now... It just boosts and boosts. And then when you add thermal velocity boost and opportunistic boosting within, you know, if there's any kind of thermal headroom at all, it's like, oh, keep giving it power, more power. 
So it doesn't stop at 253 watts. This is a completely arbitrary number. Unless you manually go into your motherboard and enforce 253, it's not going to limit itself to 253. I said, hey, maybe it makes sense to put a power limit on your CPU. I'm not going to do the Drabauer 90 watt thing. He's done that. You can go look at the, those results. But I did 125 watts. That was their last official TDP on a Core i9. And then I did 241, which was last generation's supposed power limit on the 12900K. And uh, I did some scaling testing. Now, without limits, same R23 score, 40,305, all core, 2281, single core. Now, that actually rises to 2286 with a 241 watt limit imposed which was consistent. It was odd, but it was consistent. And then when I lowered it to 125, it wasn't any slower. It was virtually the same. Uh, obviously, the all-core performance is going to scale with power. It needs all of that unlimited power to reach the 40,000 center bench R23 score and beat AMD. But you don't see any meaningful difference at all in gaming. So here's 3D Mark scores. Time Spy, Time Spy Extreme, and Speedway at all three power limits they're virtually identical. They're within the tolerance, basically, of, of the like run variance. So, especially Speedway, which is, you know, GPU bound, but Time Spy Extreme. It's they're a few points apart. Same with Time Spy. So But, but how multi-threaded is that load? Clearly not very. Yeah, agreed. because it's taking yeah. advantage of high single threaded performance. And of course, you know, 3D Mark splits their uh, test up into like a GPU side and a CPU side. And these are just the GPU scores. But then we look at, like, here's Metro Exodus. Again, the 720 low results. And for some reason, it went up with a limit in place. 241, it goes up by almost exactly five frames per second on average. And the 1% lows were three FPS higher. I mean, it was, it was it almost like it feel like enough juice in there that uh, it, it just barely goes into a, a thermal mode exactly consistently yes exactly yep and that was my kind of dumb conclusion here as i said one thing that became apparent as i saw results that slightly favored running with the power limit versus without any limits it is possible that our core i9 13900k when running without any limits and often peaking above 300 watts was thermally limited shocking i didn't actually read your thing so I didn't try to steal your no, thunder. No, no, absolutely, you're absolutely right. I, I, the only conclusion you can draw from any kind of power uh, limit scaling testing is that, holy crap, my uh, unlimited 325-watt processor that's completely saturated at 360 AIO running at 100% fans and pump, I'm still hitting a thermal wall. If you stress all the cores at over 300 watts for a certain amount of time, your cooler is going to become less effective. And you'd have to be under some kind of custom cooling or using a power limit to keep from throttling with all core loads that were that long. So it, what I found was if you just went down to 125 watts, set your PL1 and PL2 to 125 watts. If you just game, if even <laughs> if you go down to 125 watts, you won't see any change Hey, there's a lot of people who probably fall into that gamer or type category that merely just want the best in their system. They just want to buy the best. They want to have the best. They may not use all of the performance envelope, and you're just demonstrating 
you can just turn down the power limits and you won't even notice it. I just think this opens up possibilities where you can use a practical cooler. It just you can't use True. a Noctua mm-hmm. D15. I don't think I don't. I don't actually have one. I have a D14, but I should I should get a D15 and just see how long it takes to thermally <laughs> throttle. I can just find a review out there, but air cooling has been out the window since Alder Lake. Really, anyway. it's kind of gross, just because you know AMD had a, a pretty solid little cooler for their their stock thing. Um, even had you know a little LED lighting in there and. Oh, the Wraith. It did okay. Yeah. It did stealth. fine. Yeah. yeah. And now it's like, well, we're not going to ship one. And good luck. I mean, we, we oh. say it's 125 <laughs> watts or 173 or whatever, but. Yeah. Cool story, bro. Yeah. yeah. It's expensive yeah, you're, to you're, ship you're, around a two kilo block of aluminium with your chip. Pretty much. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's a little insane. I think, you know. I'm hoping that this will start walking back, but I don't know when or what's going to cause it to happen uh, because this, this power consumption is, is just gotten a little crazy and it's been, you know, since what the 22 nanometer when yeah. uh, the highest end Intel was a 67 watt TDP. And then it, you know, every generation it, it jumped up a little bit, 77 to 87 103 and then now 125 i think was was the top before you know we we got into this this crazy power stuff with the 11 and 12 series or even 10 series i guess it's sad because your cost of everything is going up dramatically because they have to overbuild the motherboards so now you get cheap motherboards out the window it just doesn't exist anymore for these new generation of parts um ddr5 is expensive these chips are, are okay, but when you start talking about, well, I've got to have a better case. I've got to have a better cooler. I, I can't do a processor and a box with a cooler. just doesn't work that way. And uh, you're just boned. You're spending more money than you have before. And I think a lot of people are taking a pretty good look at, at AM4 processors right now because <laughs> boards are inexpensive. DDR4 is super inexpensive. And uh, they've cut the prices on all of those but chips. If if you wanted to stay with Intel and you've put down the money to buy the highest end board you could afford, you know, you're buying a board nowadays. Clearly, Sebastian's just demonstrating this fact that they're ignoring PL1 limits. They're ignoring PL2 limits. They're ignoring Tau. I, I wouldn't say that we're getting close to the edge, Josh. We're over the edge with the high end stuff. And yeah. good luck cooling it. Good luck. That's really the only problem is we can certainly buy boards that can deliver enough power. We haven't been sure all these reports of my system can't run the new 13th gen core i9. It can. Mm. It's it's, they're more than capable of delivering the power. There's just no way to cool it. So you will be hit. You will be throttling at some point if you're all core unlimited, period. Just as you are with Ryzen. It's actually kind of impressive. If you think about it, I'll play devil's advocate for Intel here. How impressive is it that they're hitting a max of 325-ish watts when they're still on 10 nanometer? And AMD, the Ryzen 9 7950X on 5 nanometer is at 250 watts in the same load. So, I mean, that's obviously 75 watts less, but they're at 5 nanometer. You'd think it would be half, but it obviously doesn't scale that way. 
but no, it's 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 materials and uh, the FinFET design, uh, channel design, stuff <laughs> like that that they've really they they've done a lot of work at Intel, and I mean you know they, even though this is kind of an AMD specific flavor of five nanometer, um, it's yeah, it's I I think the long and short of it is. You've got so many billions of transistors. You've got three chips on the AMD thing. And they have such robust power delivery systems, not only just in the motherboard itself, but gating and, and distribution and all that in, in these new chip designs that they can pull that amount of power without the issues that we saw, you know, 20 years ago when... You know, some of the first 180 nanometer stuff uh, was coming out or, or probably 250, 220-ish. I'm trying to think which one had the, the most issues. I think 130 nanometer when it first was coming out, that they had the whole uh, uh, via migration um, issue or, or void migration. Oh, which my would actually God. Detach. I totally forgotten about that. You know, via's inside a chip that you'd yeah. have a chip that would be running fine, and then suddenly it just wouldn't. And oh. and how they've gotten away from all of these things with just materials and how 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 they do deposition and and I mean, it just is absolutely amazing that you can apply that kind of power to a five nanometer chip, and it just doesn't it just doesn't die. Yeah. In fact, well. they're now designing them up to run at a hundred degrees Celsius, which before you just simply couldn't do that. I mean, the, 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 the control technology, both in software and the hardware built into the chips and motherboards, it really is top notch what they can do. And they are running these chips at the very ragged edge. All right, moving on. NVIDIA, of course, has been in the news for the last couple of days, at least. This is an article from The Verge. Two Reddit users have posted evidence of RTX 4090 power connectors burning or melting weeks after warnings about thermal variants with the new 12VH power connector. How do you pronounce that? 12VH. Whooper. Very high power. Yeah. So NVIDIA 12 volt 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 high power. 12 volt high power. 12 volt high power. Josh, I agree. NVIDIA's yeah. Brian Del Rizzo said in a statement to The Verge, quote, we are in contact with the first owner and we'll be reaching out to the other for additional information, end quote. And of course, there's this picture. And I'm sure NVIDIA is thrilled about having their logo featured right on oh, pictures like this. I don't think so. But oh. I suspect what will end up happening is that we'll find that there was a considerable amount of strain put on these connectors. Don't which, molest your cables, kids. You can and, and not repositioning stress these cables. If you go through to find sources of sources, it ends up that there were some PCI SIG slides, alleged slides. They look real, and th- here's a an example of one of the slides where it's literally the same thing that we're seeing now, where mm-hmm. if you stress the cable enough, it causes. I don't know if it's arcing or what's happening. There's more to it. Well, than essentially, that. what happens it's, it's, is it's not when arcing. you stress the cable, you are changing the surface area of contact yes. in between those connectors. Yeah. And so, Correct. the lower the surface area, 
the more power that's okay. going through there, and the more it's going to heat up and act naughty. So, so if you go, if you look at the PC Mag article, they have you know more pictures, and then they have more of these slides, and they actually give the source, which is what is this? Billy Billy? I think this is Chinese. Here, let's look at the actual full image. It's three slides, and they did these 55 amp continuous tests with a test power supply. They showed a prototype PSU and then the 30 millimeters that you're supposed to have as a minimum for the cable bend. Then there's that slide that we've seen. This is interesting. Under possible root causes, it's just as Josh was saying, it's changing the contact points within the receptacle surface. That's the angle of the dangle, which is what I just wrote. Oh, I see. It's in, yes. It's uh, in direct yeah. proportion to the heat of the beat. <clears throat> That's it's exactly correct, Josh. Uh, according yes, to PCI yes. SIG, I'm quoting from this uh, slide, resistance variation between pins leads to unbalanced current. As bending causes high resistance in other pins, more current transfers to lowest resistance. Reduction in contact area caused by side load condition and loss of contact in mating interface. Possible deformation of receptacle. So you don't want to put a side load on these things. Uh, I don't know who it was on Twitter earlier today. Uh, one of the system integrators had a PSA video out there on cable adapter clearance and what cases that they have work and what don't. And certain cases where you have to use a vertical install for the GPU. You can't use a horizontal install because there's just not enough space between the end of the video card and the beginning of the glass side panel. And it would cause too much stress on the cable. So it's just there aren't enough really wide uh, ATX mid towers out there for this to not become an issue at some point because yeah. right at some point you're going to shove this thing in your case you don't quite have enough clearance but you're not going to go buy a new case and what information is there out there what case vendor so far has stepped forward and said this is our 4090 compatible case yeah, and ZXT did a couple of pictures today of, oh, you know, yeah. hey, our, our H5, I think it is, a brand new H5, whatever yeah. that was. That, that it was fits, it fits, but but they didn't they didn't show the the cable routing. Hmm. No. But the uh, uh, but the folks at uh, Falcon Northwest yes. did show their cable routing, and they've got a third-party supplier for that thing. Right, they use cable mod. That, yeah, and it looks okay. Right, there's a... There's a there's an arc to it, like it, it's it is curved, but Talon, the mid tower case from Falcon Northwest is called the Talon. I've reviewed a couple of those, and it's quite wide. It's a stout mid tower, which gives them plenty of room to have a graceful curve to that power cable. And one of the things that Falcon Northwest pointed out to one of the commenters on their post showing the cable mod cable with the 4090 was, we've been, you know, using this cable on 3090 TIs that are putting out, you know, they're drawing 450 watts since February and had zero issues reported. So it, I think it's a combination of using a quality cable, not putting stress on it, the fact that their case is a little bit wider, and then other variables like the fact that I know Falcon Northwest uses a metal bracket to actually firmly attach the GPU in place so it's not moving at all. If it's not going to wiggle at all and you have plenty of slack on the cable, I don't think there's ever going to be any strain on that, even in transit. So they have it figured out. Unfortunately, for the DIY set, you're going to be 
scrambling to find a case that's wide enough to have a graceful arc. I mean, if you can see behind me, this is a 4090 with the adapter and the cables that I've been using since. But well, that's a launch. good four inch <clears throat> diameter arc. It is. I yeah. I have how, how many how many ten in four inches? This is like five inches. That's like seriously oh, about yeah, It would be 13, 13 inch wide case to get all of that in there. Jeremy, this is five inches, and it's not even hard. This is totally flaccid <laughs> five right here. <laughs> well, you don't you want it to get to, hard. It. You didn't have to feed into it. You just didn't. <laughs> well, we're not done talking about NVIDIA. We talked about on this show how ridiculous it was, how it was problematic that they had an RTX 4080 16 gig, an RTX 4080 12 gig that offered completely different levels of performance Far beyond the four gigabyte disparity in VRAM, because it was a totally different chip. It was really the 4070. We all knew it. We talked about it ad nauseum. And then on October 14, NVIDIA unlaunched, which is uh, apparently a more positive way of saying canceled the RTX 4080 12 gigabyte. So we weren't going to have that. Now, the question that remains is, are we going to have a 4070 at $899? Or will it be seven ninety nine, or something else? I don't know, but this is the this the this is the launch that has really gotten me unexcited about <laughs> graphics cards right now, because you know at least when like the thirty eighty was launched, yeah, it was about the same price as a twenty eighty Ti, or well, I guess twenty eighty Ti was more expensive, but you know it was about the same price as a twenty eighty. Of course. MSRP didn't really last long, but you got double the performance. And now uh, you pay $400 above that for, you know, in all actuality, maybe double. I don't know. It just, it's not fun. No. And it might catch Maybe, maybe I I wanted my, I wanted my cake and I wanted to eat it too, damn it. But Performance costs money. Yeah, but that's a hell of a jump. The performance. No, I'm expecting. No. Go ahead, Jack or Jeremy. I was just going to say that I expect that uh, we're going to see a lot of them 4080-12 gigs in uh, pre-builds. Just pull them off the shelves. Don't even put them in retail packaging. Just shove them in in case builder stuff. It's like, oh, you want a 4080? Sorry, we don't even offer the 16 for you. You you get a 12. Because, well, we got a bunch of them to unload in years. I, I don't actually think they have a bunch of them. Uh, from all well, indications, be true. there were very few 4080-12s that had been built and delivered to partners. And I don't think NVIDIA really stocked a ton of them. I could be wrong, but... That would be good for NVIDIA, because they could just bail on it very quickly. Remember, it was uh, packaging that we heard publicly from NVIDIA that they were reimbursing their partners because there was a lot of, mm-hmm. already a lot of 4080, 12 gigabyte packages that had been produced. So if they're getting reimbursed for those, I'm guessing it's more that than the actual product. If there are is product out there, it'll just get stickered over. How do you Vesa. pronounce this again, guys? Vesa? Vesa. Vesa. I'm going to go with Vesa. Vesa it's says. everywhere you want to be. Vesa. <laughs> so they released their DisplayPort 2.1 specification which sounds a lot like just the stuff we already heard about USB Type C's capabilities. Like, I mean, sorry, USB four capabilities. Jeez. 
But and what's interesting about this is all previously certified DisplayPort 2.0 products, including ultra high bitrate capable products, whether it be GPUs, docking station chips, monitor scalar chips, PHY repeater chips, on and on and on, have already been certified to the stricter DisplayPort 2.1 spec. This feels a little bit like what the USB standards body does, where they're just rebranding. If everything uh, yeah. 2.0 is 2.1, then why do we have to have 2.1? Because it's one better. Okay. Well, because it costs more. Wouldn't you like to pay yeah. for 2.1 versus 2.0? But they talk about things that it's added. I mean, I guess what they're saying is that electrically 2.0 was capable. So if you get a firmware update, your connector... Is already two point. Yeah, I think it's when these, you know, when they actually do a certification number and have the list of stuff, you know, you you have to go up another notch. If even though the design itself isn't going to change, it's going to support more things through the spec. So you update the spec, and physically it remains the same. Yeah, and supposedly it does better, like like with USB four uh, or the other USB that's for, but not quite. Uh, it does better handling of uh, traffic backwards and back and forth. So it's oh, should the, electrically the manage channel. it better. Yeah. In the, the back, the back channel. I know. Yeah. The communications from like yeah. displays back to the source. Yep. Speaking of standards, Intel has standards and they lead the industry according to this press release by Intel with next generation Thunderbolt. Now, this is very, very closely tied to what we were just talking about. They have demonstrated early prototype for next-generation Thunderbolt based on the newly released USB 4 V2 and DisplayPort 2.1 specification. So you better believe that even though we have USB 4 and DP 2.1, we're now also going to have next-gen Thunderbolt. Oh, good. Which is the same, but different. Right. And looking at the numbers, like, okay, 80 gigabits per second. Okay. Up to 120. Display. Right. Uh-huh. Support for DisplayPort 2.1, of course. Go on. Mm-hmm. PCI Add. Express. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Compatible with previous versions of Thunderbolt. Oh, of course. I'm sorry, what? Shocking, eh? Naturally. Well, right. Thunderbolt over USB-C is Thunderbolt over <clears throat> USB-C, right? Y- yes. You're not going to be able to plug Thunderbolt, you know, first generation. Oh, well, maybe you are. Has Thunderbolt always probably, been you over probably USB-C could. or was it over that mini display port connector initially? The Thunderbolt 1 was over a mini display port. Okay. All right. So, yeah, it's uh, there's a video. You can read about this. Um, it's exciting stuff. Possibly less exciting yeah. because USB 4 is already so fast and display port 2.1. But Thunderbolt 4 can uh, do, P- it has to support PCIe tunneling. Oh, whereas yes. USB That's 4 okay. 2.0 doesn't, doesn't nor does. Yeah, it. Gotcha. Whereas Thunderbolt 4 has to. Okay, excellent. And I think that was pretty much it. Okay. By the way, oh. since, since I published this article, Microsoft uh, altered the verbiage on this page. So I'll just pray the updated one. Pray they don't alter it further. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Windows 10 update, guys. I think we talked a couple weeks ago about, oh, you want 22H2? It's called Windows 11. 
wrong. We did talk about this. It's called yeah. Windows yeah. 10 22H2. It's coming. It's coming. It's here. We didn't believe in it at the time. We thought it was a myth. We were like, no. Uh, last Thursday? Yeah, something. Let's see, the 18th. Is yeah, I think out. it was last Thursday when I started to get it on my test machines. So it's a... And quote, so far, it hasn't killed anything. So, hey. This is the part they changed. It says, Windows yeah, 10 what did they change? version 22H2 yeah. is a scoped release focused on quality improvements to the overall Windows experience and existing feature areas such as quality, productivity, and security. Well, some of those are a lie. And well, I mean, when he means some. <laughs> what it said last... Week, and they, I think they have a little footnote that they changed. Yes. Well, it ha- it does have one thing that is very much new. The update was changed. All right. Publication. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. It's what? quick. What do you mean? The, it was actually a quick install. The, the entire reboot only took like an extra 15 seconds. Previous feature updates like to take between two to five minutes before they will finally do it and occasionally toss in some extra reboots just to scare the hell out of you. But no, this was stupidly fast. This was about the same as like a normal patch, which also explains how little difference I've noticed between 20H2 and 22H2. 21H2, yeah. I just I just checked. I'm on, I'm on 21H2 right now, this machine. Yeah. When I yeah, so there you go. Why? Why upgrade? It's fine. When I tweeted about this right after they made this uh, announcement, this post, the quote was, "Windows 10 version 22H2 will have a limited set of features focused on productivity and management." That's it. That was the entire paragraph. I thought, "Wow. Okay, so this is really just." They're trying to steer people away from upgrading unless they're just in a business setting because they want you on Windows 11. And that mm. paragraph has been changed to... <laughs> they want you on, on what? <laughs> Windows 11? What? <laughs> I ain't beta testing your crap at work. Um, they want you on it, Jeremy. It ain't going to happen. You should be on it. <laughs> I don't think penetrations hit 10% yet in the corporate world. Oh, we have to hunt them down when they when someone friggin' enable well, when a Dell BIOS update re-enables BitLocker and all of a sudden Windows 11 can sneak in, we've got to go and steal the computer. Nope, sorry, you got a bad update. Just but it looks like my Apple at home. That's so odd <laughs> well, that yeah, you but, disable BitLocker, though, because in a uh, corporate we, we use environment... Our, we use a, a McAfee encryption at the moment. We are migrating to BitLocker, oh, I'm but sorry, yeah. Uh, oh, you, sh- you have no idea. And no, the two I, of them yeah. do not play together at all. Probably not. Does Intel still own McAfee, or is that? Furs? Oh, yeah, yeah. Hmm. But even they don't want it. Let's pause here for a word from this week's podcast sponsor. So what gets in the way of your workplace productivity? For many professionals like you, it can be repetitive typing and other boring tasks that suck up far too much of your valuable time in the workplace. Think of how many hours you spend responding to the same questions over and over in email and chat, or even digging through your file sharing platform to track down the correct email template and then carefully personalizing those replies to make sure your message is both targeted and authentic. Your new answer to eliminating repetition? Text Expander. Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations streamline your work so 
all you have to do is type a short abbreviation and Text Expander does the rest of the work for you. Create text templates and insert them anywhere you type with just a few keystrokes. Here's how it works. Drop your commonly used content into Text Expander app and give it an abbreviation. Add customizations like today's date, fill in the blank fields, timestamps, and more to make content feel more personalized. Then all you have to do is type a few characters to expand your content and do a quick search to access it wherever you type. And that's just the beginning of how Text Expander will impact your team's productivity. The possibilities to improve your workplace productivity are endless with Text Expander. Show listeners can get 20% off their first year at TextExpander.com slash PCPer. That's TextExpander.com slash PC per check it out now. Moving we're on. back, and we're going to talk about Ajisa code, Ajisa microcode updates Ooh. from AMD. It's exciting. It we, it's just a fact of life if you benchmark because it often affects performance. And here is an example. Now this is not exactly new, even though this is a news story from today at Tech Power Up. AMD releases AM5 Ajisa 1.0.0.3 reintroduces C-state boost limiter with more than four cores loaded. Now, this does obviously affect performance, and apparently version 1.0.0.2 did not have this. The limiter prevents the CPU cores from boosting above 5.5 gigahertz when more than four cores are active. Anyway, I I initially was on 1.0.0.1 with our test board. It's an MSI X670E ace that amd sent along with the cpus for our review and that board and the only bios i had available to me from amd in their shared folder was a 1.0.0.1 and the reviewer's guide recommended using that for all performance testing msi shortly after i think the actual uh review embargo was up released a new bios and lucky for me, I didn't get my Ryzen 9 processors until release day. FedEx dropped them off on release day. So when I first fired those up, I was already on 1.0.0.3. Now, I'd done testing prior to this on a Ryzen 7 7700X. And I threw all those numbers out and retested on 1.0.0.3 because it changed performance. So any of those launch reviews that are out there that, you know, did everything right and had everything done on time and made the embargo. Those are on outdated Ajisa microcode and the performance characteristics of their chip are actually slightly different now than they were when they reviewed them. So you can't win. You either miss the embargo like I did, and I still haven't officially published a Ryzen uh, 7000 review. Partly because of this, because I did days worth of work that I had to throw away. But it, it makes a noticeable difference, even if it's only one to three percent, there there are performance differences. And when you're trying to benchmark for, you know, posterity, I want to have results that I can use for the next year, and then I'm gonna have numbers that don't match up. It's let's, let's see, talk about your benchmark likability accuracy yeah. and not distance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Slow I was gonna say Let's juxtapose your your credibility and your likability factors well, where, wherever those very cross. Low. And credibility <laughs> is basically nothing because Let's you know talk about only have where my those word for cross. it. Cross. Hmm. It's so a flat did, line, Brett. I did live stream <laughs> the very first time I ever put the Ryzen 9 7900X into the motherboard 
I let people go through the BIOS setup with me and, you know, run some initial. Is that the one where you were like sloshing beverages over the chip? I was like dangling things over the LGA pan. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Ajisa microcode. It's exciting. It alters performance. It changes the amount of voltage that the CPU draws. It changes the boost characteristics. Hey, you remember uh, Memtest 86? It's been updated. Well, hey. Thankfully, the interface hasn't been. Cause this is, you know, this is. No, you can't update that's, that. No, <clears throat> that's classic. Absolutely not. Not only, but Memtest, that the but... shot does have RD RAM in it, by the way. So. Oh, no. That's a Pentium. Oh, yeah, I was going to point it. out the Pentium Four. <laughs> it's not just a Pentium Four, it's... and and an A bit board too. Nice. Wait a minute. This is an oh. i eight fifty board. Is this socket four twenty three? Yes, it is. Oh yeah, that's a fifteen hundred megahertz Pentium Four. Wow. Yeah, I had to find a good screenshot. You know what? I just realized something as I said that. Kind of an idiot am I? Of course it's a socket 423 because by the time they went to 478, they were on DDR. All right. Carry on. So Ada 64 also updated, huh? Yeah. But the big one, and yeah, and the it's a big update with Ada. I mean, it's not like a whole bunch of things have just been released that they need to uh, try and figure out how to support. Yeah. Uh, You know, a lot of fives involved in this update. Uh, but they also went full out, like a bunch of the, the Corsair all-in-one liquid coolers, uh, Steel Series Apex and Rival OLEDs. It's, it's added it all to it, so you can just do your ADA displays via that if you really feel like it. But no, that the big awesome. fun is Memtest 86 Plus 6.0. After more or less a decade and a bit, we, we now have a brand new one that'll support uh, 64-bit UEFI. It knows what DDR5 is. Um, it'll recognize the newer AMD and Intel CPUs. It's It was the greatest thing to figure out, oh, it's that particular dim which is causing my machine to become a nightmare. It Sure, it took, you know, a day to run it to actually get the errors to come out. But, uh, yeah, it's really nice to see this come back, especially after all the horrific stuff in the 90s and early 2000s where Memtest 86 sort of died and they tried to make Memtest 86 plus and then well he just sort of got bored with that because he wasn't making any money off it and it was a lot of work but hey we've got a brand new one I used to call that at the Memtest 86 uh, OS because you booted straight into it oh yeah still do who doesn't want to party like a princess? I know I do. And I can party like a princess in 1836 in Victoria 3, Jeremy. Yes. This is a game. Well, you're a princess we're, we're because Victoria, hits, Victoria doesn't become queen until the next year. Uh, but this is the, the third one of this particular style of uh, grand strategy game from Paradox. It's... It's one of their more interesting ones because the 19th century wasn't really kind to a lot of people and they've always just sort of uh, gone with that. They don't make it good or bad. It's just like, yeah, throw the kids into the coal mine because who else is going to be working down there? You got, uh, as with the previous ones, you've got several dozen countries you can play. If you don't want to do that, you can be the Ottoman Empire. You can be the Russ. You can do whatever you really want to do. I with Paradox, they 
they don't completely rewrite the game or completely make it a sequel. What they do is take everything that people loved and keep that and get rid of the cruft that just they eventually got rid of uh, via DLCs and patches anyways. But uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. I mean, you, you can finally colonize the US and Canada if you so desire. And it looks significantly prettier than the uh, previous one. So if you're into that sort of thing, it's it's a really good series. It, it's a mix between Crusader Kings and Europa Universalis. Mm. Not quite as complex as one, not quite as role-playing as the other. This next one, the title had me excited because in our show notes, uh, I think Brett listed this as Cyberpunk 2077 update. Like, yes, we're finally off 1.60. They've put in a hot fix so it doesn't keep FSR on even when you turn it off. But no, stop with no. your expectations. It's stop. No, it, it, it will give you cyberpsychosis, which is something you've already experienced from trying to benchmark it. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to admit something right now on this live. Broadcast. Mm. Okay, oh, we're listening. I don't know what edge running is. I have no idea. I know that's associated with cyberpunk. This is an article about it. Ads edge runners inspired cyberpsychosis. What does that okay, even mean? Will- Anime. Was it a tabletop game? game? It was an anime yes, based on the game. But Edge so Runners is. This is more recent. It was. Okay. It was a TV Netflix. show on Netflix. Oh, it's a TV show. Yeah. Okay, I thought it was like TV a show. way of playing the game or something. Like I don't. I don't understand. No, they turned no. the game into I don't know, like a ten episode, eight episode anime. Yeah, something okay. Like that. I mean, if you want to, if you want to run Edge Run while you're playing the game, throw in a thirteen nine hundred K and a forty ninety with a bent cable on it, <laughs> and you will definitely be running the Edge. <laughs> Okay. I'm just not sure my eyes are going to vibrate like that at the end, but maybe. Hmm. The point was, is I think uh, the, this modification gave uh, breathed life from one of the aspects of the anime called cyberpsychosis. They brought that from the anime back into the game. I'm not sure how they're implementing it right now. I mean, Kent would know. Well, but, there's a humanity stat, or at least there was in the pen and paper game. Where, yeah, you had a humanity stat where if it went low enough, you would, uh, and if you played the game, you know, you just sort of go loopy and start slaughtering people because, well, why the hell not? You're a machine and you're not even real, so neither are they. Uh, and that was one of the things with the game is that you can just swap stuff out all the hell you, all that you like. In this case, it's like, yeah, you want that new cyber eye, but uh, it might just put you over the edge and now all of a sudden you're going to start blacking out and waking up. Uh, with a lot of people very, very mad at you and a lot of other people very, very dead. Real quick, let's talk about another review that went up recently, back on October 18, actually. Samsung 990 Pro. And uh, you know what? This might be the fastest Gen 4 SSD. I haven't seen the new Solidime one yet, but this one's really fast. It's offered in a with heatsink, which actually has RGB now, and a without and we got the without in for our testing, the two terabyte. And as you can see, looking at the 980 Pro two terabyte and the 990 Pro two terabyte, they look pretty much the same, but they don't perform the same at all. And previous generation Samsung drives, even though it was Gen 4, don't be confused. A two terabyte 980 Pro is not a high performance solution. It just, it just, it was disappointing. Their 980 Pros did not scale well with capacity. The one terabyte performed better than the two. I received a 512 initially, and it was it way outperformed the two terabyte, as you'll see. 
uh, even the t- like, it, it's let's just look at some numbers. If you look at the PC Mark 10 drive benchmark, a very good test. We have both quick and full system results here. And the 990 Pro is just obliterating the competition. I tested it against that two terabyte 980 Pro and the Hynix Platinum P41 at two terabytes, which is an excellent drive. And it's like 1500 points ahead in these tests. So it's pretty impressive and i mean look how slow the 980 pro 2 terabyte is in like these mixed workload real world type tests here's the breakdown by the way the full system drive benchmark the average bandwidth is over 750 megabytes per second which doesn't sound that high because it's not the glamorous sequential numbers but this is a more realistic scenario loading things uh, opening programs that sort of thing and the hynix uh, platinum p41 is at 614 megabytes per second. So we're at like 140 megabytes per second on average faster than that Platinum P41. And I mean, the the numbers with the 980 Pro 2 terabyte are just, it's not very good. 450 on average. And then the quick drive benchmark, same thing. It scales up considerably to the 990 Pro. And here we have some of those uh, crystal disk mark results. Sequentials are actually slightly faster with the Platinum P41, but we're talking... 7156 versus 7136, if that matters. Though, I will say at low Q depths, QD1 specifically, the Platinum P41 is significantly higher. Over 6,000 megabytes per second sequential at QD1 versus 4,700 with the 990 Pro. And it does, actually the 990 Pro does a lot better with sequential write performance than even the uh, Platinum P41. So I, I could go over some of these numbers some more, which works, you know, about as well as you'd expect, especially over audio. I will point out that the one area where the previous generation 980 Pro 2 terabyte was actually faster was in 4K random write. Now, I only test with one thread. I do QD1 through QD8. And at lower Q depths, the 990 Pro is faster than the 980 Pro, quite considerably so. But at Starting at QD4, the 980 Pro is faster. I feel like this is just like one firmware update away from being rectified, but Samsung clearly has uh, tuned the firmware of this drive to lower Q depth performance, which is where those huge gains in a benchmark like PC Mark 10 system drive benchmark are so evident because the, most of this is happening at those low Q depths. So anyway, it's it's a very impressive drive. I don't think the pricing is bad at all. If you if you look at what the 980 Pro launched at, and Josh has brought this up before, storage is one of these areas where it's great. You don't have the massive price increases for performance that you have in like graphics cards because the 980 Pro launched early last year at $400 for two terabytes. This one is launching with significantly higher performance a year later at 289 What's not to like? It's it's significantly faster. It costs more than $100 less than the other one did at launch. Now, I did not have a WD Black SN850 in to test. So that's the next one I need to grab along with that new Solidime drive. But this, this is a very impressive drive and seems to be priced competitively. So. Yeah, the 980 Pro wasn't really a Pro, was it? No, it wasn't. No, it, it felt like... I don't even know if it was an Evo. The Evos used yeah. to be really fast drives. 
just felt like the 980. And there was a 980, like a, just a plain 980. Yeah, that was PCI 3. So, yeah, yeah. it's Which, oddly enough, I, if I can reach it, I still have it installed it in my wife's computer. So, yeah. Hmm. Are you Within sure that's not PCI reach. Gen 4? No, it's 3. Oh. Okay. Read speed up to 3,500 megabytes. Okay. So, yeah. Just had a five-year yeah. warranty. Hey, you've already used up a year of that warranty. It's just sitting there. Pretty much. Pretty much. All right. Let us move on to Pix of the Week. I mean, at least you haven't right run through all the Josh. bits. Me. Um, you. you know, as we talked about it earlier... Uh, AM4 is still a viable platform, and there are more reasons to jump to it. If you've been holding off, uh, I know people who have had the same CPUs for eight years. It just happens. I mean, they're not bulldozers, but <laughs> but there's a lot of you know i7s out there and i5s that have been perfectly good gaming performers, and you know your your things getting long in the tooth. And uh, AMD has now slashed their prices uh, across the entire 5000 series line. You can get a 5900X for about 340 bucks, I think. Uh, but the one is most interesting to me is, of course, the 5800X3D. It is now, well, this says that 349, but I have seen it down to 120. No, I mean, uh, well, I mean it seemed down to 300 No, 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 $329. Okay. <laughs> so uh, at Newegg, it still is at $329. Uh, Amazon, they just recently jumped the price up 20 bucks to $349. So uh, pick your poison. You can get still what is a top gaming processor, uh, you know, 8-core, 16-thread, 3DV cache, uh, you can get fast DDR4. You can get 32 gigs of DDR4 3600 for under $100 now. That's just that's bonkers. dirt cheap. Yeah, and it's more than double for DDR5. So, and again, motherboard costs. You can get a good motherboard for 150 bucks, 160 bucks. Really good. And yeah, just just get it. I'm I'm really considering ordering one here soon at that price, but I so am I. Just, it goes up, especially if new still has it. At yeah. I mean, yeah, I may, you can put it next to the SSD tonight. Yeah. No, this would probably and go it, into my main computer and I'd play. In all honesty, yeah. it's a much better deal than micro center right now. And that's saying something. Honestly, that's uh-huh. crazy. Way better. I mean, all like right. 50 plus dollars better. Yeah. Jeremy, your pick. No, no, this is this is a warning. This is definitely a warning. If you like the original XCOM style games and you have a job or a life or any other sort of hobbies, <laughs> do not look at Terra Invicta. Oh my god. So this was originally sort of put out and I I, I kickstarted it because it looked amazing, although it looked like a very different game from before uh it instead of being xcom turn-based fighting on the ground it's ship to ship combat at least if you ever figure out how to build ships and uh 
you know, arm them and deal with Delta V and Holtzman's transfers because you don't just fly from the moon to Earth. You plot the transfer. You decide how much Delta V you're feeling like burning to get there, whether you do it a little slowly or not. And essentially what you start with is a, a world map, just like you're used to with the XCOM games, except every country is labeled. Uh, and you need to keep track of every single one of these countries, because if there's a revolution going on in Angola, well, you damn well better know where Angola is, or you're going to have to go do the search. Uh, so it's also a great geography lesson. Uh, once you start trying to build ships, you've got to start building space stations to be able to then build mining things on asteroids or... You know, I've gotten as far out as the moons of Jupiter at this point. And the worst thing about it is that the aliens are so significantly far beyond you that when you first manage to scrape together a ship and try and attack them and you're coming in and they're coming this way, you realize you have to hit full break to try and slow down a little bit while these things are flying all around you in circles and blowing up your ships. It's insane. It's it's amazingly well written and I I can't stop playing and I'm actually mad at you guys for making the show go on this long. <laughs> is there, should I be worried that it has this little warning this game is currently in development even though you can buy it? Uh, it's... I mean, they're patching little things, but there's no major game-breaking patches that have come out at all. Okay. I, I wouldn't say that it's still in development. I think that good old games just might not have updated their page. Okay. Uh, you can get on Steam if you prefer. But yeah, if if you're into that sort of game, and uh, yeah, just don't buy it. Unless you get a lot of holidays to blow. I won't, because I have so many games that I haven't played in no time. I don't know why I'd even get a new CPU. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Brett, do you have a pick this week? Yeah, I actually picked something fairly simple. You know, usually I would pick some sort of widescreen display, but this week I went with sort of a television widescreen display accessory. And this is a way to cleverly mount your sound bars for only about 20 bucks. What this bracketing system does is actually mounts to the same um, um, bracket system that is is holding your display on the wall. Um, There's a perfect graphic to to show it off and it sandwiches in there or 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 um, attaches to the back and is a great way to mount your soundbar so that you can tilt your display or aim it in the direction and your soundbar moves in the very same way and this obviously can work up above or down below so rather than having your soundbar sitting on a piece of furniture because why are you such a heathen you have a piece of furniture below your 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 floating tv get rid of that it's just holding up your soundbar use this Attach it to your TV mount and and aim it aim the sound in the same direction as the display for twenty dollars. Does it include appropriate screws? Because I imagine if you're sandwiching another piece of metal, certain I TVs think it does. might need just a little bit more thread. Those are all quarter twenties, I believe. So I think it includes it. It is kind of tricky sometimes mm. to find the right length, though. Because true. I've done it. I've gone to the hardware store and looked for a replacement screw because the one I had just wasn't quite enough to give me a secure feeling when you put like a 60 pound TV on the wall. I had that moment when I hung my uh, LG 65 on the wall. Yeah. yeah, that's the one I have. It's it. You know, you'd think, oh, they're so razor thin because, you know, the top of the TV is like a millimeter thick. Waffa thin. 
But yeah, the exactly. bottom of the TV is not. And no, the overall weight of the thing is like 65 pounds because it's yes. a, it's like a big sheet of glass. It's not light. But it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, today's background is Warhammer 40K. Yes. Warhammer 40. Those are ultramarines, by the way. Nice. Mm. Josh, uh, do you have an outro in your system? Oh, Lord. Leave.